You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. fam. Today's reading is from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. It's a pleasure to be with you again, um, taking us through this series on the good way. For those of you who are maybe new or just joining us for the first time. My name is Ryan, one of the pastors here, and we've been in the middle of a series talking about what we call the good way. These eight practices that define what it means to orient our lives around the person and work of Jesus. Uh, We talked first in the first week about having a rule of life. In other words, how do we live intentionally with these practices? And then the week after, we talked about prayer, and Patrick walked us through what does it mean to live a life rooted in rhythms of prayer. And last week, we talked about scripture, and what does it mean to live a life rooted in the story of God, the story God is telling about himself, about this creation, and about you. And so today, we're going to continue this series, and we're going to kind of make like a little pivot here. So the first two practices we talked about, scripture and prayer, have primarily to do with how we relate to God. And for many of us, that is familiar in our Christian experience. If you grew up around Christianity, you know that one of the two things you get told to do is what? Pray and read the Bible. And so these are kind of our, these are kind of our horizontal, I'm sorry, our vertical kind of practices that orient us towards God. There's us, there's God, and prayer and scripture help me get to know God, helps me to listen to God, et cetera, et cetera. But then the question remains, how then shall we live? Okay, we have this relationship with God, but the logical question proceeding from that is, what does that mean for me in the world? What does that mean for your work and for your life with your families? What does that mean for your personhood? What does that mean for your growth and your maturity? What does that mean to how you relate to injustices in the world? And really, this is where we begin to move from our orthodoxy, right belief, what we believe, into what we'd call an orthopraxy which is right practice, that our beliefs, what we believe about God, believe about the world, believe about ourselves, must be reflected in how we interact in the world, or else how will they know that we are his disciples? If our Christianity, if our 
relationship with God is limited to simply this kind of vertical connection, but there's no horizontal praxis, then we're really not living the way of Jesus. And so the rest of the series, we'll be talking about those kind of horizontal practices, these practices that help us relate to the world in a way that recognizes Jesus as Lord and his Holy Spirit's activity within all of us. So before we dive in, allow me to pray for us, and then we'll go into our teaching text and kind of unpack what we're going to talk about today, which is Sabbath rest. Father, creative heaven and earth, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your scriptures. We recognize that when your word is preached and your scriptures are read, you are indeed speaking to us. And so may the words of our mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, speak to us today. Give us hearts hearts and ears to listen, ready to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So, I remember I was about 14 when I had my first job. If you grew up in New York City, you'll know what I'm talking about. You get your little work permit, and then you go to summer youth employment, okay? If you're like a native New Yorker like me, you did summer youth employment. You showed up with your little card. We sat in a big auditorium in Queens College, and they basically talked about how to be responsible adults and work. And then there was like a mini job fair in which jobs like pitched themselves. You got to work them for the summer. And I remember doing this at 14, and, and my life was different from then on out. I had money. I had stuff. I had things. Okay, and for a kid who's growing up in a single-parent household, money, stuff, and things are beautiful things because I get to do what I want, when I want, or so I thought. And so I was really excited for this first job, and I remember just this early memory of, like, if I want to have more of this sense of freedom, I must work. And for many of us, that perception continues, right? The more I work, the more I'm able to do and produce, the more I'll earn, and the more I earn will produce this sense of freedom because I now have the bandwidth to do the things I want. And so for all of us, work is an unavoidable aspect of the human experience. In the 21st century, work and our personhood are often intertwined. Notice when you introduce yourself to someone, you awful, what, what do you lead with? Hi, my name is blank, and I am a, and you usually put your job description. You don't say I'm a human being. You don't say maybe like your ethnicity. You're like, no, we lead with our job title, especially in a city like New York when you meet people for the first time. What do you ask them? Hey, so what do you do? Work is just completely bound up in how we understand ourselves. We understand ourselves by our doing, by our ability to produce, by our production. Part of the living in a, in, in, in a capitalist society is, is that reality, is that we relate to ourselves via our work, via our capacity for production. And yet, despite this sense of freedom work gives us, there's also an allusion to all of it. There's this concept that we have that if we work hard enough, we'll have some some way to control the very chaotic aspects of our lives. Yet for those of us who are working, recognize that that sense of control is somewhat limited. You don't need to raise your hand, I promise you, but how many of us, because of work, are, are riddled with anxiety? 
I mean, there you go. Thank you for the honesty, Andrea. <laughs> How many of us are on borderline burnout? How many of us have worked and worked and worked, and that promised sense of freedom still seems ever elusive? And so it begs the question, are we made to be defined by our work? And how do we understand our work in light of the person of Jesus? Well, this is where we turn to our teaching text and to the conception of Sabbath. So we go to Genesis, the creation narrative, which takes place in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We get this picture of God creating. So for six days he's creating heavens and earth, you know, sun and moon, earth and sea, plants and animals, humanity. And then... All of a sudden, God decides to take a break. It says God rests from his labors. Now, we have to understand this. What the author is saying there is not that God is weary from creation, and so he's like, I need to take a weekend. What's actually happening in this moment, that word rest in Hebrew, is more conditioned to help us think about enjoyment. That after God works and creates creation, he enjoys his creation. That he sits back and says, look at this beautiful creation I've made. I want to revel and enjoy it with my creation. Notice, if you read Genesis 1, there's a, there's a continual refrain in the, in the poetry of the book. It goes like this. That God will create something, and then it would say, it was evening, and then it was morning, the first day. It was evening, then it was morning, the second day. But when we get to day 7 and God rests, there's no evening and no morning. The cycle breaks. And so there's a theological implication here that the rest, the enjoyment of creation instituted by God is the way in which creation should function. That we should understand our lives within this view of enjoyment. That we were made not to do, not to produce, not to get, but to enjoy. That our, our lives... The world at its best, at its peak, at the dawn of creation, is meant for enjoyment. For us to enjoy creation and thus to enjoy God. And so it's actually Brevard as Childs, Old Testament scholar, who says, Sabbath rest was built into the very structure of the universe. That humanity was made for this kind of generative enjoyment with God. That we were made to be in relationship with God and with our creation and from that derive our enjoyment. We weren't made for toil. We weren't made for anxiety. We weren't made for burnout. We weren't made to define ourselves by what we do, but we were made to enjoy the presence of God and his creation and that that enjoyment would be generative. That doesn't mean there was no work. Adam and Eve actually get a job as soon as they're created. And they're, they're, they're called to steward the garden. A Adam, very famously, right, this portrait of him naming the animals. But even in the beginning, work is not toil. It's not stressful. It's an overflow of their enjoyment. So the things that they're doing in the garden are an overflow of their enjoyment of God and creation. So even work is different Work is connected to this generative rest that we find rooted in the life of God. But, and we could all ask them why one day, um, upon the new creation, is Adam and Eve don't like this setup, for whatever reason. 
and they decide to take life into their own hands. So we get, the, we get the image in Genesis 3 of the fall of man, in which Adam and Eve decide, and really that, that tree of the garden of knowledge of good and evil is really symbolic of this choice to learn on their own terms what is good and what is evil. So humanity decides, we're going to call the shots from here. We want to be like God, knowing good and evil. We're going to decide what's generative. We're going to decide what's good. We're going to decide is what's wholesome and pure. And immediately this creates the separation from God. Because the moment we forget we are created beings and not the creator, we set ourselves up for death. And so what happens is, because of this choice, because humanity says, I want to reject to learn from God, and I want to, I want to decide what is good for me, our relationship to work changes. Notice, this is what God tells to Adam, and a pronouncement he makes upon Adam after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. He says this, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All of a sudden, humanity has a new relationship to work. Work has become toil. Work is no longer generative. It is no longer life-giving. Matter of fact, what should have been this reciprocal generative relationship between humanity and creation is corrupted. Now creation will work against humanity. Now the thing that was supposed to be a life-giving resource for humanity will become a source of death. And so... When we then begin to look at our own lives, look at our own relationship to work, we see this pattern at play. Now, we might enjoy our work. We might get a sense of meaning out of our work. But ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, the sense of generative fulfillment that this thing is going to give me life is often lacking. People often ask me, Ryan, you work at church. This must be a great gig. You get to talk about Jesus all day with your colleagues. It's an easy job. No. <laughs> Even the work that is quote-unquote spiritual has this aspect of toil to it because our very capacity to enjoy generative work, to enjoy a generative life in the life of God is hampered by sin and death and brokenness, both the brokenness of others and the brokenness of ourselves. And so the question after the Genesis narrative is how will humanity learn to work again? How will they learn to understand who they are in their relation to their work? How will they once again recapture that sense of generative enjoyment that was present in the garden? And so this is what takes us to our teaching text. What we get here in a snippet of our teaching text is the Ten Commandments. Just to recap the story of Israel real quick, Israel in slavery in Egypt, God sends Moses and Aaron to deliver them. Ten plagues. They come out, the, come out of the, um, the, 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 the kingdom of Egypt free people. They cross the Red Sea. And then God takes them to Sinai in which he makes a covenant with them. A covenant being a way that God would relate to Israel as his people and how Israel will relate to God as their Lord. 
And so, in this Ten Commandments is this provision for Shabbat, for rest. And Israel is commanded to take one day out of the week and honor it and keep it holy. Now, holy here is meant to understand as something that's set apart from common use. So all the seven days of the week, Israel will take one day and set it apart to God. And because of this, they were going to learn something about themselves and learn something about God. This is what we call a formative practice. That the Sabbath would be a living reminder both to God and Israel of the eternal covenantal relationship, which was the ultimate purpose of creation. That, that, that generative enjoyment of God that we were all created for, the Sabbath was to exist to teach Israel what it was like to be those people again. And so they get this practice that every week they were to be reminded about something about God and about themselves and about their work. So what was the effect of the Sabbath on the people that we can observe happening in Scripture? Well, the first effect the Sabbath had on the people, it's actually, I'm borrowing this language from a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel. He says this, he says, The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of the things of space. But on the Sabbath... We try to become attuned to holiness in time. It is a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal. To turn from the results of creation, in other words, to turn from the things we do, to the mystery of creation itself, i.e. God. And he says, this is a great line, he says this, The seventh day is a palace or a cathedral in time. It is made of soul, of joy, and reticence. And so for a moment, picture with me a, a, a beautiful cathedral. Um, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Barcelona for our little summer vacation. The real reason we're going there is because my, um, my, my wife's sister um, got her tickets to see Beyonce in Barcelona. <laughs> Don't ask what I did during that time. I just wandered the streets by myself, you know. But we were in Barcelona, and one of the things I did while they were, you know, going to go see this concert, I went to um, La Sagrada, which is a beautiful basilica in Barcelona. And what a, the, the goal of a cathedral, basilica, a church, is to evoke something in you, the sense of the eternal. Right? I go in, there's these high vaulted ceilings, there's stained glass, there's all these evocative images. And really, that's intentional, because when you go into a cathedral, you're supposed to think, I'm in heaven. Now, depending on what church you grew up into, maybe that's not what you walked in thinking when you went to church. But it's supposed to be, I'm in heaven. That, 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 that the space between heaven and earth is blurred. And so what Abraham Heschel notes here is that that's what Sabbath does for the people of Israel, does for us. Is that the, by taking this day and setting it apart as holy, all of a sudden the space between our normal everyday lives and the divine is blurred. In that moment, in the Sabbath, we learn that our lives don't exist on their own. They exist within the story of God. That our, that our regular, everyday doings aren't meant to be 
thought of in isolation from the rest of God's divine story, but we're meant to put our story within that divine story. Sabbath was to teach the people of Israel, remember who you are. All the days of the week you're working, you forget who you are, but on this day you remember that there is a God and he is in relationship with you and he is calling you to live in such a way so that you are reminded of him. And so actually, what, even like our gathering here on Sundays, the reason we gather every week on Sundays is not because this is the pinnacle of the week, but we come to this moment to go out into the rest of our week. We learn on Sundays the people we want to be on Monday to Saturday. And so the Sabbath does the same thing, resting, taking time apart from the normal humdrum use of everyday life is meant to evoke in us a sense that our lives don't exist in a vacuum, that they belong to God. On top of that, though, there's this element of trust the Sabbath teaches us. Let's for a moment remember, Israel is an agricultural people. Most of them live off what's called subsistence farming. That means they farmed enough to earn a living. That's what subsistence farming is. So to tell a people whose every day depends on harvest and work and tilling soil, fending off predators. Imagine you're a shepherd in ancient Israel, and one day you have to leave your sheep by themselves. And you can't work. There's this sense of trust the Sabbath evoked in them. That for a day, I have to trust that when my hands are tied, God is still working. That when I cannot exert control over my environment, God actually holds the entire world in his hand. And so what the Sabbath teaches in us is that same sense of trust. If we can rest for our labors for a moment, can we trust as the world continues to spin that someone else is holding it and not me? And it's this sense that that our lives are oriented in the divine story, this sense of trust, that actually the Sabbath rehumanizes us. Let's be honest, a lot of work is dehumanizing. When we are forced to think of ourselves in light of our production, in light of what we need to produce, we end up conceiving our lives as cogs in this wheel of progress. But the Sabbath says, no, remember, you are human. You are made for more than just your work. You are not what you do. You are not conditioned to be simply a means of production. You were made for enjoyment, and that enjoyment being rest and trust in the person and character of God. You want to feel human again? The Sabbath invites us to rehumanize our souls, to take a step back from our work, because work in and of itself isn't bad, but to take a step back from our work so our work doesn't become toil to remember that God is holding all these things together, and that even when I cease to work, God is still working. And so this is the key point. If you walk away from anything today, hold this in your mind. For the people of God, the Sabbath is an exercise in trust, an intentional reordering of our lives away from the anxious toil which masquerades as control. It is a posture of rest predicated on trust and anchored in God's divine care and providence. That is what the Sabbath is. The question is, how then do we practice the Sabbath here in the 21st century? In the 21st century, how do we honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? Well, I love to use Eugene Peterson's um, model for this. He has this great um, kind of way of understanding the Sabbath. He actually says this, Sabbath is not primarily about us or how it benefits us. 
It is about God and how God forms us. It is not in the first place about what we do or don't do. It is about God completing and resting and blessing and sanctifying. These are all things we don't know much about. But it does mean stopping and being quiet long enough to see. Open mouth with wonder, resurrection wonder, to cultivate the fear of the Lord. And in this, our souls are formed by what we cannot work up or take charge of. We respond and enter into what the resurrection of Jesus continues to do. You see, for Eugene Peterson, the Sabbath isn't about primarily about you. It's about what God is doing in you. For once, the Sabbath is admitting, I cannot on my own strength become the person I'm supposed to be. And so what the Sabbath says, it's an invitation to stop rest and enjoy God. Eugene Peterson says the Sabbath is to pray and to play. That in the Sabbath we take intentional time to pause and say, God, what are you up to? How are you moving? What are you doing when my hands are at my side and my soul is at rest? And then from that place, that posture of God, what are you doing? Not what I'm doing. God, what are you doing to move into a place of play? to move to a place of enjoyment. And so when we think of practicing the Sabbath today, it's that. How can I pray? How can I play? But the Sabbath will not happen if you do not take time for it. Um, you know, it's, I remember sitting in a, with a mentor, and he said, you know, just as you schedule meetings for work, so you have to schedule rest. And so, part of practicing the Sabbath is finding a time, an intentional time, to pray and to play. An intentional time to put our eyes on God and to enjoy those things that are generative for us. And so, just as we schedule meetings and hangouts and things, like for myself, I have a Sabbath on Fridays. That's where I take my Sabbath because of working at a church, Sundays is Sundays. So, Friday is my time. And I take that thing seriously, like, unless someone's in a burning building or there's a death in the family, like, that's my time. And, if, and what's cool about, even if you want to peek into our staff culture here, it's like the rest of, like, the pastoral team, man, everyone, they, they honor that. Say, so this is a time when Ryan is resting from his labor and listening to God and getting some generative enjoyment. And so, my question is, what would it look like for you to stop, to pause during the week sometime, some way, and enjoy some generative rest in the presence of God? What if you treated it as seriously as a meeting, as seriously as something that else you hold dear? Now, we're going to close in a moment. I do want to say one thing about this. The reality of our socioeconomic realities is that Sabbath is often a privilege for many and an impossibility for some. When my, my mom raised me by herself for most of my teenage years because my parents had um, split. My dad was kind of out of the picture. At one point, my mom worked like two, three jobs. Sabbath rest was not on her radar because sa if Sabbath rest meant not taking a job, which meant not having money, which meant not like having dinner, okay? That's the kind of context in which we were dealing with, um, you know, Losing our, we, you know, our house was foreclosed. All these things, right? Like we couldn't fit gas heaters. All, so my mom had to work so that we can survive. And so I want to say for those of you in the room, you're listening, oh, Sabbath sounds brilliant, but my life isn't set up for Sabbath because 
my situation, my stuff. And this is where this community comes into play. Sabbath is not an individual responsibility, it's a communal responsibility. So for those of us who have the privilege to Sabbath, it is incumbent on us to make sure others who don't have that privilege get to enjoy that resource. So again, for my mom, a single mom, no, it would have been the greatest thing for her if her community got around her and said, hey, we'll watch Ryan from Saturday from 8 to 5, and you take that time for yourself. Because that was the only time she was going to get it. Or guess what? It, more practically, like, hey, Maria, we'll cover X bill so that you don't have to take that third job so that you can have generative rest. And so another question of the Sabbath is, how will we help people in our community who can't Sabbath, because it's a privilege for many, to enjoy Sabbath rest? Band, come up, and we're going to land the plane. So how do we practice Sabbath in the 21st century? Well, first, it's finding a time, set apart, making that time holy. Then it's saying, God, how might I enjoy your presence through prayer, through contemplation, through scripture? How do I enjoy some generative activity that gives me life? Like for me on my Sabbath, I go on walks, I read, I write. Now I'm in grad school, so my Sabbath, well, not, I've been in grad school, but I'm finishing grad school this semester. Yes, thank God, finally. Long journey. But for me, my Sabbath has changed now. So I, use, I have to use part of my Sabbath to do schoolwork. So now I'm adjusting my Sabbath and maybe relooking at what that looks like. But the point is, is that for each of us, our Sabbath will look different. But it will have these same core elements. It will be a set-apart time by which we can pray and play, by which we can spend time in the presence of God and enjoy the generative rest and activity that comes by taking time to do that which gives us joy. But... Sabbath is not an end in and of itself. The writer of Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, them being the people of Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just God, as God has said, as in my anger I swore, they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about seventh day as follows, and God resteth on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day, today, saying though David much, through David much later, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. What's happening here? The author of Hebrews is making a comparison between the, the, the church he's writing to and the people of God is Israel, ancient Israel. And he's saying, man, rest was available to the people of God. It always has been. The door to rest, to generative life, is always open. But some of us fail to attain it. 
And here's his point he's making. He's saying today, there is an opportunity for you to experience rest like you've never experienced before. And it has nothing to do with the practice of Sabbath, though the practice is good. The practice of Sabbath is actually a shadow. It points to something beyond itself. What the author of Hebrews would say is actually the full fulfillment of Sabbath rest is the person of Jesus. And the reason the people of Israel didn't, didn't obtain that Sabbath rest, it was because of their hardness of hearts. So for some of us, we've tried. We've tried to work and do and toil. We've tried to exert some sense of control over our lives, and we're burnt out, and we're fed up, and we're anxious, and we don't know what to do next. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, hey, listen here, there is a rest for you, but you have to enter into it. You have to put down the disobedience that comes with, I'm going to make my life my own. And I'm going to figure out life on my own. And I'm going to make enough money and do enough things so I don't have to worry anymore. You'll never hit that point. And he's saying, so the rest available today is the very person of Jesus. Because Jesus did all the work so you can rest. Jesus did all, on the cross did that work to redeem, redeem your soul so you can rest. So if you want generative rest, yes, the practice of Sabbath has, is nice. But the person of Jesus is better. So we actually practice Sabbath because we want to be closer to the person. The practice points us to the person. And it's that person, it's him, it's that his spirit that gives us true rest for our souls. So here's today's invitation. And prayer team, if you want to come forward too, and um, communion team, get ready because we're about to go to the table as well. Here is today's invitation. If you go tomorrow and start practicing the Sabbath without this point, it'll be dead. It'll be, it'll be dead on arrival. Because here's why. You need the person to experience the gift of the practice. So here is today's invitation. Come all you are weary and heavy laden and take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are the words of Jesus. And so for those of you who are heavy laden, those of you who have been striving, those of you who have been trying to exert control of your life through your work, Jesus says, come, take my burden upon you, because it is easy and it is light. And that's what he continues to say. And you will find rest for your souls. If just taking a day off would have sol solved the anxiety of our souls, then the weekend would be enough. We get a lot of weekends. A lot of us don't get a lot of rest. And I, my, my true belief is that the person of Jesus gives you rest and peace that surpasses all understanding that guards your hearts and your minds. And so today, if you're like, yeah, the Sabbath sounds great, but before I get the practice, I need the person. That is today's invitation. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So in a moment, we're going to go to the table. And we're going to take and eat the very body and blood that was broken so we can have rest. But also, our prayer team is here and here. If you are weary and heavy laden, if you are toiling and it seems like you can't break the cycle of toil, if you want to rest but the realities of your life prevent you from it, I want you to come get prayer. Come, come to the table, take of the bread and the cup, and then go pray with somebody. Why? Because Jesus wants to give your souls rest. Life may still be chaotic, the job may still suck, but Jesus wants to give you rest for your souls. 
On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. The gifts of God for the people of God. Come, all you are weary and heavy laden, and receive your rest. Come and eat. <laughs> 